Welcome. You're listening to the Gideon Warrior Network. This is part five in the series, Kingdom Dominion or Future Dominion. It is subtitled, A Bird's Eye View of Revelation. In part four, we learned according to Revelation and other scriptures, the First Testament or Old Covenant was vanishing away. Hebrews 8.13 is where we found that and that something new was taking its place, and that it was to have no end, Ephesians 3, 20-21. And we confirmed it by the Old Testament prophet Daniel at chapters 2, 7, and 9. We were reminded Daniel was to seal up the vision, for the time was not at hand, while John, at Revelation 22:10 was not to seal up the vision, for the time was at hand. Already in this series, we have found that this at-hand message is affirmed at the opening chapters of Revelation, Revelation 1-1, and we also learned that chapters 1-4 through 4 of Revelation convey the assemblies, the seven assemblies or the seven groups, the seven ecclesia, the seven churches as the scripture translated it incorrectly. It should be ecclesia or assemblies or uh, the called. And in this case here, we learn basically from a bird's eye view that chapters 1 through 4 of Revelation are conveying that the seven assemblies or the seven ecclesias had some failings, some shortcomings or even kingdom dominion soundness uh, issues, which were already evident and being revealed to John. Chapter 4 opens with another definitive time statement, and I quote, I will show thee the things which must be hereafter. End quote. And the closing book, chapter 22, verse 6, announces, quote, These sayings are faithful and true. The God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. End quote. We really had to unlearn what we've been told or taught about re- when the Revelation, the book of Revelation was written. We unpacked Revelation chapter 1 verses 5 through 7 and determined unequivocally, five kingdom, dominion, foundational, scriptural truths demonstrating this revelation is not far future. We confirmed by an angel telling John he was to prophesy again before many peoples, tongues, and nations. And we opened the record of Revelation 5 and jumped into Revelation 6, where we came to learn the seven seals are the manifestations of God's judgment. Judgment for whom? Now is where we come fully to realize the importance of understanding the kingdom dominion and the two branches of Jacob Israel, the house of Judah and the house of Israel. And that is precisely why I began this series trying to reacclimate our minds to that understanding of the kingdom, dominion. And in the first six chapters, we also revealed the First Testament outline or that it mirrors 
the First Testament outline. You had first an identity of the prophet and his authority to speak. Secondly, seven woes to the seven assemblies of God or admonitions or praises or reminders, Revelations chapters 2 and 3. And then the throne room of God with the elders looking on in expectation and imposition of judgment and a sealed testament of the covenant and duties, responsibilities brought to remembrance in Revelations chapter 4 and 5. And finally, judgment was foretold, pronounced, its manifestations were exhibited at Revelation 6, and sword, pestilences, and famine, and captives of war were revealed. And now that brings us to part 5. Chapter 7 of Revelation begins with the identification or the seal of protection being applied to those who are not to be harmed. Now, do not miss this, church world. Sealed are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. Let's read Revelation 7-4 right now. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed a hundred 44,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe Azar were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Naphtalim were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Manasseh there were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Issachar were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Zabulon were sealed 12,000. And of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. End the scripture. You see, this means Israel did not go out of existence, ladies and gentlemen, in spite of what your church world has been teaching you. That God no longer deals with the Israelites. That they simply went out of existence. But now he deals with the Jews and the Gentiles. You separate this passage from this book by ignoring it is insane. Turn with me quickly while we toggle a little bit here in Revelation to chapter 22. Going specifically to verse 18. For I testify unto every man that hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. If any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. End quote. Boy, I tell you, the church world has got a lot of answering to do as it pertains to this book of Revelation. Now, let's go back to chapter 7, drop on down to verse 9 from where we were. After this, I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number of all nations, and kindreds, and peoples, and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hand. What we've just learned from this scripture here is that there's a great multitude that could not be numbered, and they are in white robes. Who was those in white robes? Drop down to 13 and 14. And one of the elders 
answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knows. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Amen. Who exactly was in great tribulation? It was the divorced, cast off, ten-tribed Israel. And they have now been clothed with white robes, the robes of righteousness, washed in the blood of the Lamb. The sacrifice has been made to atone for the sin and the violation of the Sinaitic Testament, the First Testament, the Covenantal Agreement. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 1. Sorry, taking me a moment to get there. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Here you have the book of the prophet of Isaiah conveying Wash your robes. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes and cease to do evil, Isaiah 1.16. And then says, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. They had no idea, the Israelites, how this was ever going to happen. Because in Jeremiah 3.8, Yahweh had divorced them. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. And I don't have these scriptures written down, so you're going to have to bear with me. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 3 and to 5. And let's read what we hear, see here. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, and stood before the angel. He answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. Here we have the prophet of Zechariah expressing that Joshua is going to get clean robes, washed robes going to be made, those filthy ones are going to be taken away, the iniquity is going to pass from him. Joshua, Joshua, who we have no real record that Joshua did anything contrary to the Word of God. So that just tells you something about our God and the sacrifice that he made in Israel's behalf. Back to Revelation chapter 7 and verse 16. I'm just dropping down. Don't worry about anything. I, I'm not trying to take your attention away from anything. I'm trying to pull us out into a bird's eye view where we won't get mired down in imagery or visions or allegories or anything that could confuse us. We're just going to pull back and get a real nice bird's eye view of what's going on in Revelation. Uh, 16, it says, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sunlight on them, nor any heat. They, 
they. Well, who is the they? The context of chapter 7 tells us they are the multitudes of the 12 tribes who also would come to receive the news of their redemption and no longer would be in sorrow or tears crying about their separation from their God. You take away the context of these clear identifiers It's as egregious as taking away the clear identifiers and time statements. The language here is no different than that which is used in the prophets of old. Turn with me back to Isaiah. Go to Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8 first. And I'm there. He will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces, And the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all of the earth, for the Lord has spoken it. He's going to wipe away all tears. This is the same language we see in Revelation 7. That's a prophecy in Revelation 25 being fulfilled in Revelation chapter 7. Turn with me to Isaiah while you're still in the book of Isaiah and go to Isaiah 49 verse 10. They shall not hunger nor thirst, neither shall the heat nor sun smite them. For he that hath mercy on them shall lead them, even by the springs of water shall he guide them. And I will make all my mountains a way, and my highways shall be exalted. Behold, these shall come from far, and lo, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Sinim. Once again, what do we see here? They're not going to hunger. They're not going to thirst. If we look into the book of Revelation and look at that as nothing but a futurist view and not fulfilled prophecy from the book of Isaiah and the prophets of old, then we clearly do not understand what Jesus was conveying to John. Some other scriptures that you can access there. For time, I'm not going to go to each and every one of them, but... well. I think I want to do this one. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Um, I marked down Psalms 121, uh, 4 to 6, and 23, 1. And 36.8 for a couple of other options to go to with regards to how David viewed these these things and how he spoke of them. Now, in Revelation 7, obviously there's big speculation regarding the 144,000. But I always tell you when I'm speculating. So this is a speculation alert. Remember, They had to be sealed in their foreheads to be protected from the prophesied judgment of chapter 6. Is this a fair representation of those tribes living in and around greater Judea? Quite possibly. Based on the context of their being protected, it seems highly probable. Is it to be interpreted as an exact number? Well, likely, it's probably symbolic 
of a great number. End speculation. It specifically, however, does draw attention to the 12 tribes of Israel. That you can be sure of. In chapter 7, verse 14, let's reread that. And I said unto him, Sir, thou knows, and he said to me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Uh, I think I'm looking for... uh, Boy, I'm drawing a blank on that now. I don't have that in my notes, um, but what I remember was heaven departed as a scroll, and I'm trying to... Uh, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, and I apologize. Again, like I said, a lot of these notes I began to throw together as I was going along, you know, reading and studying Scripture over the last couple, three years. And so I have different notebooks, and I would write in this notebook, this is this is a revelation um, consideration for for, you know, my thoughts and those things that I wish to convey in a future message regarding Revelation. So I'm not sure exactly what. I can't recall exactly. I thought it was in 714. And I just, I'm looking at a few more scriptures around it to see if I just had a incorrect uh, um but I'm not I'm not catching it right now. So we will eventually swerve back into that, I think. But if this is a far future, uh, Revelation is a far future prophecy, as the church world largely profess uh, that it is, just answer these few questions. Why do they continue to hold to a doctrine which says that Israel, that is, biblical Israel, is no longer in existence, is gone. God's done away with them. And he now deals with Gentiles. That would actually make Revelation as a future prophecy rather ridiculous since they've cast all Israel, biblical Israel, that is, out for a new Israel in the Middle East called the Jews, and the state of Israel. We have to reconcile with this, and we have to approach it with eyes wide open as it pertains to these current ecclesiastical leaders that have always been in the prominent positions on television, radio, and in the major you know, airwaves and so forth. And so here we are. We find ourselves about a third of the way through Revelation. We've gone into seven chapters of Revelation. And we're really not confused or misguided at all. We've used nothing but a reading of Revelation in a broad sense, we have, and we've pulled back and took a look at it from a bird's eye view, but we have a pretty good idea what Christ is revealing to John. We're really not being influenced or guided by any outside source or preconceived beliefs, doctrines, or interpretations. We're not bogged down in, well, what does the white horse or the red horse or the pale horse represent? Although those are easy enough also to understand, as they simply represent the judgment assigned 
in the imagery. We can address them specifically later. But chapter 7 reminds me of the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 11, and it should not go without review. So we can confirm and verify the far future prophecy which is found there and fulfilled in uh, what appears chapter 7 of Revelation. Let's go to Isaiah, back to Isaiah, and go to Isaiah chapter 11. All right, now, we're going to find in, in Isaiah 11 about the root of Jesse, the branch of Jesse, and some will be saying, yes, Doug, we know that Christ is the root of Jesse, but, you know, come on, okay, well, we're going to read this for context, and then we'll try to get to the points that need to be made regarding Revel, uh, Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of Yahweh, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And the righteous, excuse me, and righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the child shall lead them, and the cow and the bear shall feed their young. Uh, one shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the suckling child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse which shall stand for an ensign of the people to it. To it shall the Gentiles seek. That should have been translated nations. To it shall the nations seek. And his rest shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day that Yahweh shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and Cush and from Elam and from Sinar and from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. He shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah. Judah shall not vex Ephraim. But they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west, and they shall spoil them of the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. And the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea, and with his mighty wind shall he shake his hand over the river, and shall smite it in the seven streams, and make men go over dry shot. There shall be a highway for the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria like it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. End the scripture. Wow. 
wow, what a reminder and what a prophecy that's being told. I want to bring our attention to a few things. Obviously, the rod of the stem of Jesse, that's your future Messiah. I know many are going to say, yes, we understand, we get that. The spirit of Yahweh to rest on him, to judge righteous judgment, smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips. And at verse 10, we read, a root of Jesse is to be an ensign, a sign. It's An ensign is like a banner. It's like a flag. It's a, that root of Jesse is going to be as an ensign. And to it, the scripture says, to it, the ensign, shall the nation seek. And in 11.11, the second time, it says, to recover the remnant of his people. Well, who was that remnant of his people? And what was the first time, if this was going to be a second time, that he was going to recover a remnant of his people. The first time was obviously the Exodus, and the second was Christ coming to gather those that God had directed him to recover and assemble. And at verse 12, assemble the outcasts of Israel. It doesn't get any plainer than that, ladies and gentlemen. And the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Here we are talking about the house of Israel and the house of Judah in Revelation chapter 7, confirmed by Isaiah the prophet in chapter 11, flying to the west on uh, the uh, shoulders of the Philistines. All the migrations to the west were the white, Anglo-Saxon, Germanic, Scandinavian, and Celtic and kindred peoples. You find also in this scripture that he's going to destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea. I don't want you to forget that phrase. Remember this phrase. And I suppose you, like me, when you read that, you naturally understand it, right? Well, we can't oftentimes, but words have meanings. And I thought on that word, tongue, as well, and decided that I had to run that passage through Bible Hub. Tongue, in this scripture, is number 3956. It's Lashon. It means a bay. And I want to read you the scripture from the New Literal Translation. And this is, once again, why I tell people, don't be afraid of the translations be afraid of what the translations might be attempting to tell you that they shouldn't or do with your understanding that they shouldn't. The reason I use the King James is because it's keyed to Strong's Concordance. And yes, the other Bibles are supposed to also, so if you find a word or a phrase or anything else, again, you may have a totally different interpretation by reading the scripture than when we read the scripture in another translation and it takes us running it through, for example, Bible Hub, which I've shared with you that I use um, very specifically and uh, enjoy uh, the quick access that I have to Strong's and to the uh, translations that also may have other renderings that can be helpful. Isaiah 11:15 reads this way in the New Literal Translation. 
the Lord will make a dry path through the gulf of the Red Sea. He will wave his hand over the river Euphrates, sending a mighty wind to divide it into seven streams so it can easily be crossed on foot. End quote. Obviously, for the purpose of God's destruction being imminent and convincingly known as a mighty wonder and deliverance on the highway for the remnant of his people. It's so old covenant. Another Red Sea deliverance right here in Revelation 7 for those with eyes to see, which is, quite frankly, the fulfillment of Isaiah 11:15. And I find it no accident that after this imagery and story of chapter 7 is revealed, it is here that the seventh seal is now open because there was a pause between the sixth seal and the seventh, going back to Revelation chapter 7. And actually we'll be picking it up now in Revelation chapter 8. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. So here... The seventh seal is opened. Seven angels are be given seven trumps, trumpets. These seven angels are each going to sound a trumpet. And these seven trumpets are going to be seven warnings. It's really not any more difficult than that. Angels offer the incense for the saints' prayers to rise up to God, and another angel takes fire, fills the censer, and casts it to the earth, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. When an angel casts fire to the earth, are we to assume that it is to consume the whole earth? You see, how can we when we're still on it? Oh, I know, I know, I know. That's because it's all far future, Doug. Get with it. Well, not so fast. Now, not only is the seventh seal opened, but it too is so reminiscent of Old Testament. Sometimes read David's song of praises in Second Samuel 22 and the way David describes Yahweh's deliverance. And you'll see what I mean. I'm not going to take time. Now, I've given it to you in Scripture and go there on your own. But your might, Bible might even have a cross-reference to this passage in Exodus 19. And let's go there, and I'm going to read from verses 16 to 19, and here we go. All right, I think I've got an error in the Scripture there. Um, oh, I was in 16. My apologies. All right, Exodus 19, and verses 16 to 19. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mount, 
And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long, and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. The Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. I read 20 there as well. Here, Moses is bringing, essentially as the groomsman, bringing the bride, Israel, to God. Just another recap for your minds about what actually happened. Uh, Another thing comes to mind in Hebrews chapter 12. And now I'm back to Peter, so here we go. Uh, Hebrews 12. And let us read, beginning at chapter, uh, verse 18. For you are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the words should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure that which was commanded, and if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But you are come unto Mount Sion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and Ecclesia of the firstborn, again, translated church in the King James is incorrect, Ecclesia, or the assembly or called of the firstborn, to the general assembly and called of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you refuse him not that speaks. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. You know, the Exodus account of the trumpet sounding, as I say, was the announcement of the groom coming to receive his bride, Israel. And here are seven announcements by the trumpets that are conveyed now in Revelation 8 and 9. Again, imagery aside, what are we actually seeing in Revelation 8 and 9? From the opening of the seventh seal, it is unquestionably again the announcement and pronouncement of judgment upon the apostate Judahite house. Listen to what the angel says in verse 13 of chapter 8. 
And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of, other, of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. So here he is. Not only have we already had the angels, the trump being sounded on the first trump, the second trump, and the third trump, <clears throat> and this fourth trump, then when this angel passes by, he says, woe for the next three trumps. And now we're at chapter 9. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. Okay. And he opened the bottomless pit. There arose a smoke. There came out of the smoke, verse 3, locusts upon the earth, and to them they were given power as scorpions of the earth have power. It was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass, the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. And in those days shall men seek death, and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle. Their heads were, as it were, crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions. It's just so full of imagery and just trying to give you a vision of what this day of judgment and the woe, woe, woe which is coming upon the inhabitants of the earth. And then finally in verse 12 he says, One woe is past, and behold, there come two woes more hereafter. Sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice of the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, loose the four angels, which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, and were, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000 thousand, and I heard the number of them. By these were the third part of men killed there at verse 18, for their powers in their mouth and their tails. Their tails were like unto serpents and had heads, and with men do they hurt, and with them do they hurt. Very, very enlightening. Now I want to take you to Josephus. <clears throat> and I didn't write it down because it was quite lengthy, so you'll have, to be, uh, you'll have to bear with me. I've got to pull it up, and it's going to take me just a minute here because I didn't have it ready. All right, let me read this out of Josephus. Chapter 8, 403, section 403. So the Romans, being now become masters of the wars, they both placed their ensigns upon the towers and made joyful acclamations for the victory they had gained as having found the end of this war much lighter than its beginning. For when they had gotten upon the last was without any bloodshed. They could hardly believe what they found to be true, but seeing nobody to oppose them, they stood in doubt what such an unusual solicitude could mean. Solitude, my apology. 404. But when they went into numbers into the lanes of the city, with their swords drawn, they slew those whom they overtook without mercy, and set fire to the houses whither the Judeans were fled, and burnt every soul in them. 
and laid waste to a great many of the rest. And when they were come to the houses to plunder them, they found in them entire families of dead men, and the upper rooms full of dead corpses, that is, of such as died by the famine. They then stood in horror at this sight, and went out without touching anything. 406. But although they had this commiseration for such as it were, destroyed in that manner, yet had they not the same for those that were still alive, but they ran every one through whom they met with, and obstructed the very lanes with their dead bodies, and made the whole city run down with blood to such a degree indeed, that the fire of many of the houses was quenched with these men's blood. 407. And truly so it happened, that though the slayers left off at the evening, yet did the fire greatly prevail in the night. And as all was burning, came the eighth day of the month uh, Elul upon Jerusalem. 408. A city that had been liable to so many miseries during the siege, that had it always enjoyed as much happiness from its first foundation, it would certainly have been the envy of the world. Nor did it on any other account so much deserve these sore misfortunes as by producing such a generation of men as were the occasion of this its overthrow. Now chapter 9, section 409. Now, when Titus was come into this upper city he admired not only some other places of strength in it, but particularly those strong towers which the tyrants in their mad conduct had relinquished. 4.10 For when they saw their solid altitude and the largeness of their several stones and the exactness of their joints, as also how great was their breadth and how extensive their length, he expressed himself after the manner following, quote, We have, this section 411, We have certainly had God for our assistant in this war, and it was no other than God who ejected the Jews, meaning Judeans or Judahites, out of these fortifications. For what could the hands of men or any machines do? Let me back up on that and clarify something I just said. Who he? This is his quote, and then I'll comment. The section 411. Quote, We have certainly had God for our assistant in this war, and it was no other than God who ejected the Jews out of these fortifications. For what could the hands of men or any machines do towards overthrowing these towers? End quote. Now, Josephus, himself a Jew, we have to remember that we have apostate Judahites, those who want to claim the blood of Abraham, however, they are not acting in accordance with Abraham, nor are they acting in accordance with the stewards that they were supposed to be. And so you have to look at that word Jews, as we've done in our series, uh, Israel, Judah, and Jew, uh, I've got a seven or eight part series titled Israel, Judah, and Jew, where you'll have all of those questions in your mind about who's who cleared up from the Bible. So he's expressing that he's now recognizing when he comes in here that it had to be by the hand of God 
that he had assistance in that war because of what he found and the um, impenetration. Now, we had also done another fellowship uh, several months back. Uh, The title of that escapes me, but I do believe it was on our series where we were just uh, digging into seed liners and closet seed liners, and I got into several parts of Revelation in that uh, message series also. But the point here is, is what he is saying um, and how he expresses that he certainly believed they had to have God as their assistant. And it says at 4.12, at which time he had many such discourses to his friends, he also let such go free as had been bound by the tyrants and were left in the prisons. To conclude, when he entirely demolished the rest of the city and overthrew its wars, he left these towers as a monument of his good fortune, which had proved his auxiliaries and enabled him to take what he could not otherwise have been taken by him. That's just just amazing. And that's what I have found. You know, it, it has been amazing to me, finally, finally, to understand so much which is revealed by the historical account of Josephus and confirmation of the biblical record. While at the same time, it's infuriated me to know how little the average Christian has comprehended about Christ's woes of Matthew 23 in connection with these woes here in chapters 8 and 9 and the apocalyptic language Jesus used as being directly applicable to John's revelation and Josephus's account. And so one might say, well, does this matter? No. No. No, not at all if one wishes to remain blind, being led by the blind. You see, one can clearly understand these judgment of the angels through the eyes of Josephus, and they become very applicable, and thus they add greater weight, and again, to the gospel record, which includes the revelation of Jesus to John, of the things which must shortly come to pass. Stay tuned for part six.